Turn to Acts chapter 17 this morning if you could. I love hearing that baby. There was a time in my life that uh, we had uh, little children. I have my four girls. They're all back home living with uh, me uh, and Shelly right now in our house. And, and it is a hilarious house. It's a, a complete girl's house. And there's a lot of girl conversations that go on on a daily basis. Uh, the big topic of conversation as of late, as you can imagine, has been wedding dresses. And so we've, we've had a lot of discussions about, uh, wedding dresses and wedding plans and all kinds of great things going on. And, uh, the, I, I would by no means tell you today that my, my house is like an insane house like it was when my kids were like two and three. Um, when my kids were younger, uh, there were many times that the, 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 just the home itself got so crazy that I a lot of times just wanted to go, oh Lord, let me just go out of here and just scream into like a black abyss. You know, because of just the craziness of life and raising kids and changing diapers and getting food ready and dealing with company and all kinds of things that go on, you know, in your life. And I think that uh, one of the things that I, I wanted to say to you today that I, um, I think it was really important that we connect some some real truth here is that um, our lives, if, if you if you stop and think about it, the world that we live in is very, very crazy and absurd, isn't it? It, it is. There's 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 a lot of things that are going on in our lives. Even this morning, many times it could be really. You you could have walked in here this you know this morning and said, man, this is it, my life this week has been absolutely insane. And and so sometimes we we come and we 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 stop and we worship and we hear the word and it almost seems out of context because our lives are so crazy. And I, I want you to know this morning that, that Jesus says, says to all of us in that, uh, be at peace, I've overcome the world. And remember what he says there when he says that, he says, you haven't overcome the world. I've overcome the world, he says. And so this morning, it's a good precursor to, for us as we go and we, we, we talk about this piece of Scripture that really is one of my most favorite pieces of Scripture, and I wish I could talk forever about it. But this morning, we'll trust in what the God has for us in there. But that's a good precursor for us to understand kind of where we're going this morning. And uh, I want you to start reading with me here and, uh, in Acts chapter uh, 17. And look here. This is Paul's second missionary journey in 17 verse 16. This is Paul's second missionary journey. He has come finally to the city of Athens. The city of Athens is the cultural, the uh, intellectual, the religious, the arts, real city of the day um, for the Roman Empire. The city of Athens, by the way, uh, if you were to draw a modern day comparison, looks a lot like the city of Nashville today. And I think that many of the things that you're going to hear today have direct proportion to who we are and what's going on in this city in our lives. So I would encourage you to be thinking about that comparison as we read. Let's start here in verse 16. While Paul was waiting for them in Athens, he was greatly distressed to see that the city was full of idols. And so he reasoned in the synagogue with the Jews and the God-fearing Greeks, as well as the marketplace day by day with those who happened to be there. A group of Epicurean and Stoic philosophers began to dispute with him. Some of them asked, What is this babbler 
trying to say. And others remarked, he seems to be advocating foreign gods. And they said this because Paul was preaching the good news about Jesus and the resurrection. Verse 19, then they took him and brought him to a meeting of the Areopagus, where they said to him, may we know what this new teaching is that you are presenting. The Areopagus, by the way, is Mars Hill. And it's, it's a place where all the religious, the cultural, the philosophers of the day gathered together at Mars Hill. You've heard that term before, I'm sure. Verse 20, you are bringing some strange ideas to our ears, and we want to know what they mean. All the Athenians and the foreigners who lived there spent their time doing nothing but talking about and listening to the latest ideas. Sound familiar? Paul then stood up in the meeting of the Areopagus and said, Men of Athens, look what he says. I see that in every way you are very religious. For as I walked around and looked carefully at your objects of worship, I even found an altar with this inscription, To an unknown God. Now, what you worship is something unknown. I'm going to proclaim to you. The God who made the world and everything in it is the Lord of heaven and earth and does not live in temples built by human hands. And he is not served by human hands as if he needed anything because he himself gives all men life and breath and everything else. Verse 26. From one man he made every nation of men that they should inhabit the whole earth. And this is interesting. Look what it says there. And he determined the times set for them and the exact places where they should live. Verse 27, God did this so that men would seek him and perhaps reach out for him and find him, though he is not far from each one of us. The thing that I want to talk with you first about today is I want to talk with you about two things that I feel that that are going on here. And first is this. I think Paul right here is talking about the absurdity of culture. Let me say that to you again. Paul here is talking about the, the absolute absurdity of the culture that we live in. When in, when in verse um, 16 there, where it says, While Paul was waiting for them in Athens, he was greatly distressed, look what it says there, to see that the city was what? Full of idols. The idea of greatly distressed here means this. His heart was heavy. It was. It comes from a different part of your heart. It wasn't a part of, I'm really mad that this is going on as much as I'm deeply distressed and burdened that this is going on. It's almost like this. He sees people in this kind of this giant Pac-Man game of life all on the screen, just gobbling up whatever it is they gobble up to find meaning and hope and purpose in their life, meanwhile devouring and gobbling up each other. That's what he's seeing here. That's what's going on. But why would Paul be so distressed about this? Maybe he's distressed because he knows how God feels about idols, and I want to talk to you about idols, and I'll make the connection here in a minute. In Deuteronomy 5, it says this, You shall not make for yourself an idol, whether in the form of anything that is in heaven or above, or that is in the earth. In in, in verse 9 of that same chapter, it says this, You shall not, very interesting, You shall not bow down to them or worship them, for I, the Lord your God, am a, what? Jealous God. Our idols 
are the things that we bow down to in worship. But it goes far more than that if you peel back the onion. They are the things that bring meaning to our lives. At least that's what we really believe. Make no mistake about it, we bow down and worship for a reason. It's because we believe something very deeply about our idols. We believe that they'll bring meaning, ultimate meaning and purpose and hope to our lives. There's a young lady here, I'm sure, more than just one, that was raised in a home where things weren't good. They were bad. She would probably tell a terrible story about the wreckage of her past. And now that she's grown up and come to college or out of college and she's single, or it could be a young man, it's the same story. What she has decided that in order for her to find real meaning in her life, in order for her to feel meaning and significance, she's going to have to have somebody else in her life to give her that meaning. And I'm going to tell you something. She will, die, she will bow and she will worship that man. And that man, by the way, in the same way, if they come from this past where they believe that this person is this relationship, this thing, this thing that I'm doing, whatever it is, if it's my job, if it's my relationship, I want you to understand something. We will create our idols because we believe that our idols bring us meaning. This man is finally going to give me meaning in my life, especially if we get married. He's going to be the one, or this woman is, or this job is, fill in the blank. It's absolutely true of all of us. A young lady grew up. Her, her mom left the home when she was six. Stepmom came in. Stepmom and dad were alcoholics. She has a horrific story to tell. She grows up. She gets married. She has a baby. And she believes something in her heart that she tells no one about. And here's what it is. She believes that I'm going to do it right. I'm going to do it different. I'm going to raise this child and I'm not going to be like my mom and dad, how they treated me. And what she'll in essence do is she has the full power to create. Actually, her kids could be the thing that she sets up as an idol. Because she believes that she's going to receive meaning. Do you follow what I'm saying? That she's going to receive meaning from even her children. Ultimate meaning. And this is why we are idol worshipers, even us, those of us that are in Christ. We struggle with this. We create idols. The city of Athens was full of them. Our culture is absolutely full of them. And when God is saying here in Deuteronomy 5, listen now, when God is saying, bow down to me and worship me, He is giving us a command that goes to the innermost chamber of our hearts. There's no other person or thing, he says. I am the only one who can bring meaning to your life. You believe that? So Paul is greatly distressed because, you see, he sees the, he sees the Pac-Man game. He sees the absurdity of it. 
he sees the foolishness of the people trying so hard to gain meaning in the worship of something that they built with gold or silver or wood. He sees that the absolute fool's errand that these people are on, they're walking around literally aimless. It's a lot like what Jesus sees in the gospel when he cries over people that he sees and greatly distressed they are. This message has, could have great significance for you today. Listen. I want to make a transition, but I'm going to, it'll, it'll all tie in in a minute. Listen to this. I think we need to finally say that in the West, that the West, America, has almost wholeheartedly moved from, and I talked with you about this last week, we've moved from a very religious view of the world to a very secular view of the world. God has become remote at best. One man recently said, My grandfather preached the gospel of Christ, and my father preached the gospel of socialism, and I preached the gospel of science. And I think that if we were to look at our Vanderbilt students and our Belmont students and all the other students that we have coming to both of our congregations, we would both probably readily have to admit that the majority of teaching that we hear from people is the teaching that they're working from a point where they are working from a very secular understanding of life. For us to even speak the name of Jesus or God as creator in our life doesn't even make sense. Think about what I just said. That is how crazy our world has gone. Secular evolution is now the master of our culture. It teaches that we... Now, this is interesting. It teaches that we came from nothing personal and popular philosophy denies us life beyond our lifespan. We are headed nowhere. Having zeros from both our origin and our destiny, the only conclusion is that life is nothingness. The only conclusion is that life is meaningless. Could this be the reason why our city is so full of idols? People believe that life in nothingness are people in despair. Your neighbors are these people. People without hope. People that feel that they have no origin or future are people that ultimately feel that life is meaningless. Trust me, beneath all the superficial beauty and the smiles and the degrees and the tattoos, it's exactly where people in this world are at. Despite what you may think about your friends that are in your life, and you may know them despite the fact that they may, you may think that they've got it all together for whatever reason you think they've got it all together, trust me when I tell you that they lie in their bed at night without hope, without meaning, and so what do they do? They create. For themselves, they construct for themselves a thousand idols that will somehow dull their pain. And in their war against meaninglessness, they construct idols like my boyfriend or my girlfriend or my job or my education or my money or my sex. 
or my power and my freedom and my intellect and my future. And what about us? What about us, church? What about us, church? Are we speaking into the absurdity? Are our friends right about us? That we're just one big giant right-wing political movement that watches Fox News? Is that what is that what Jesus came to do? Be president? Did he? Did Jesus come to be president? Did Jesus come to get on a bumper sticker? Those fish that eat each other up. Is that what Jesus came to do? Have we become a a political movement? Have we become nothing more than a voting demographic? Is that what we become? Let me make sure you hear something from me today. I say this in in love to me as much as you. Politics can't speak into the meaningless of a heart. Politics promises to bring a hope, but it doesn't have the hope. And then the other thing I want to ask you, church, today, is are we any different than our culture? What does our world see us bowing down to? If Paul were to come into our lives and into our church here with all of us, and I'm right with you, would he see a thousand idols? Because wouldn't it be true that many of us, if we were to really admit it, I know it would be true for me, that I really have idols built up in my life, and I want you to know that the worst thing about it is, is that I believe something about them. I believe that in many ways they will bring me hope. If I can somehow have this, this idol, this will finally make it for me. For some of you, maybe it's a new job. For some of you, it's getting out of your, your, your marriage. For some of you, it's more money. For whatever it, fill in the blank. We believe something about this, and it's very interesting Because we need to ask ourselves the question, what does our world, the world, the culture that we live in, our Athens, see us bowing down to? Are we greatly distressed by our idols? Many of you have come to me. You've said things to me in in confidence. Thank you for your heart. And as I think about our conversations that we have, and I think about me and and the conversations that I have about things that are going on in my life, I really truly do wonder if I'm greatly distressed about the things that I bow to. And the answer would be no. And it hurts me to tell you that. Many of us have our idols. It's our work. or Many of you in here... You have an idol that's called your past. Your past is the thing that you bow down to because you believe that even in the most shameful of circumstances, it can in some way give you meaning if you stay bitter or if you don't forgive. Think about it. What is it that we actually believe about our idols? It's a good question for us to ask. 
Do we see the absurdity of it? Do we see the meaningless of it all? And what about our world? Are we greatly distressed about the idols of our non-believing friends that the ones they bow down to? Let me ask you something. Are you greatly distressed? Do you see the absurdity of it all, you guys? The things that people are actually on a chase for that they believe are going to bring them hope and meaning and purpose in their lives? Are we distressed about this? Are we distressed enough to speak into this? Trust me when I tell you this morning that God has given you a Mars Hill. He's given you a place to speak. Are we speaking? Are we distressed enough about our culture that we're speaking? Second point. Not only the absurdity of our culture, but are we speaking in what I would call is speaking redemptively into the absurdity of it all. And that's what Paul is masterfully doing here. He's speaking redemptively into the absurdity of the culture of Athens. When I was a little boy, my dad took me on house calls. We had pamphlets. Romans Road. This formula that we would take people through and we took them through the sinner's prayer. Romans 3.23 and Romans 6.23. I'm sure God used that for His glory. But as I think about it now, I wonder, was I just speaking about a formula? Or was I speaking about a God who died on a cross? These people knew that Paul was talking about the good news of Jesus. How do we speak redemptively into the culture? Take special note of verse 17, where it says, He reasoned with them. Verse 22, Paul stood up in the meeting, and look what he says, and said, and it says, He proclaimed. Let me ask you a question. I do that a lot, I know. Are we standing up and saying anything? I know that we're, many of us are advocates of creating relationships with people before we can speak truth into their lives, right? Let me ask you this. Have, or have we just come to the place where we've just said, well, we're just going to make relationships and let God do the work and we don't have to say, have to say anything? I found myself this last week talking to somebody and this person was, was sharing with me something and as they were sharing with me about what they believed, all kinds of fireworks going off. I'm going, red light, bad, 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 not good, not good thinking. Do you know what I did? I slimed out of the frothy monkey. That's what I did. Because, yeah, after all, don't we live in a world that is, well, you believe that. And I believe this. So now we've come to the place where we're just comfortable coexisting and you can believe that? I kind of felt like an amoeba. 
crawling out of there. And I thought, do I, do I have any truth to say? Why, why wouldn't I want to say it? Well, then I began to think, why didn't I speak? And one of the real ugly things that came up was because I didn't want this person to, to not like me. Isn't that weird? But that's where we're all at. And in, in reality, that's pride, isn't it? So I'm right with you. Listen to this. Maybe one of the greatest barriers to a skeptic's salvation is the failure of Christians to confront doubt with bold faith. And that's what Paul was doing here. We have kept Christ in the crypt. The word is suspicious of, or the world is suspicious of all who mention God. Thus, Jesus, like a medieval Bible, seems chained to the church. Is that true? Is the only way that we would know how to talk with our friends about Jesus would be as if we bring him to the church walls, inside the church walls, and let him hear a dummy like me? Like a captured animal, the liturgical Christ roars against the pleasant sounds of our world. Pacing back and forth, he longs to escape the church house and meet the needs of the suffering and the damned. He is protesting our artificial categories of the sacred and the secular. The world is his and he belongs in it. When Jesus walked in the Gospels, he walked freely. He was a free man who probably wore a really cool bathrobe. Right? Isn't that what we think? And really awesome sandals. But I do want you to know that Jesus was a free man. And I want to ask you a question. Is he a free man in your life? The question has massive ramifications. Is he free, first of all, to do whatever he wants in your life? And has he been freed and loosed in your world, in your Mars Hill? Has he been? Oh, please don't hear me this morning. Try to talk with you and lay some guilt trip on you. We've had enough guilt. Paul wasn't talking. Paul wasn't even feeling guilt. It was a complete other emotion. Paul was feeling this burden for his world. Paul was hearing Jesus say, go. Go into your world. Hey, church, get Jesus out of here and out there. I mean, don't get me wrong. It's cool that he's here. A couple other questions. Do we believe that the message of Christ contains substantial meaning for our culture? Do you hear what I said? It's a, it's a question of do you act, I'm asking it if you actually believe this. I, ch- I, I like to challenge you on this level a lot because I think it's important for you to actually start creating what you actually do believe. Not what you profess to your friends having wine on Friday night. I'm, I, I want, I'm, I'm challenging you with what you really believe. Do you really believe that the message of Christ contains substantial meaning for our culture? Do you believe that the message of Christ contains substantial meaning for yourself. Do you? God has called us to participate in the ministry of meaning. 
God has sent us to go boldly and preach the sanity of the gospel into an insane culture. Did you hear what I said? God has asked us to do that. And let me make sure that you hear this too. This is one of the reasons why I need... (laughs) It just sounds so rote. I don't even want to say it. It just sounds like something that you hear all the time. But I want you to know that I'm saying it because I believe it. This is why I need my community. Because I am an idol worshiper. And I need my friends to be around me to speak the sanity of the gospel into my life. Do you understand that? It's absurd the way I think. It's absurd the way I behave. It's absurd the decisions I make. And I've got to have people in my life that are going to speak the sanity of the gospel. And that's why I've got to have the Word of God that's going to speak the sanity of the truth to me. Because in reality, if we were to be truthful, we don't want the truth. We want the insanity of our lives. Do you follow? Are you agreeing at all with what I'm saying? Please don't. Please have a hard time with it. Think about the world we live in. Think about it. Think about how crazy it is. Think about the things that we go to as our first issue that we go to when we feel pain. If that's medication, or if that's sex, or if that's porn, or if that's the bottle, or if that's drugs. Think about the absurdity of it. See, we can fall into the line of thinking of being that we're, it's kind of meaningless for us too, is my point. When Paul. What Paul's doing here when he talks in Athens is something far greater than just his speech because you see, you got to follow this. He saw his life as one giant opportunity adventure to set forth God's love expressed in Christ as the only hope to a hopeless world. Do you see that? So the whole presupposition, the whole foundation of Paul was that he saw his life as this opportunity to set forth God's love expressed in Christ. In verse 23, it says there that people were grasping or that that, that Paul uh, talks about, um, for as I walked around and looked carefully at your objects of worship, I even found an altar with its inscription to an unknown God. Well, what in the world was going on? What was going on is that people were very uncertain about their gods. There's no certainty to who they worshipped. The Stoics, referred to in this scripture, were pantheists. Do you know what pantheist is? Many gods. Sound familiar? Many gods. The Epicureans were your classic hedonists of the day. They were eat, drink, and be merry. Sound familiar? And what this all led to was this giant uncertainty about life. 
And what Paul does is he comes in and he doesn't say, hey, let me tell you about a great idea I have. Jesus is president. Paul comes in and he says, let me tell you what I'm certain about. And in uncertain and crazy times, God needs very certain and crazy messy people that will stand up in the midst of all the absurdity and speak truth. And this is what Paul was doing. He was speaking the sanity of Christ. And his intention was to bring the Athenians to the true God. Last questions. Am I and both of us, are we speaking the red story into our culture? You know what the red story is? The red story is a story of atonement. It's a story of blood. It's a story of a man who came and lived. It's a story of the God-man, King Jesus, who gave his life for you and for me and for our ransom. And blood was shed. And by that blood, we can now be forgiven. We can now have an eternal future. We can have an identity. Are you speaking the red culture into you, or the red story into your culture? Are you speaking the red story into your own heart? Are others speaking it? I'll end by this. One day Helen Keller's teacher placed her in her hand the key that was to unlock her silent blackness. This is the story of Helen Keller. For those of you that don't know, she was a young lady who was blind and deaf, helped by her teacher by the name of Ann Sullivan. There's been Obviously, it's a book and a movie. It says this, Neither hearing nor seeing from infancy, she had no way to learn sign language nor to communicate with signs or symbols. She had been touching hundreds of objects, but there was no way, way to know what they were without sight or sound. And her teacher took her down a familiar path to the well house where someone was drawing water. Her teacher let the cold water run over one of one hand and in sign language spelled, the, the, spelled into the other, W-A-T-E-R. Suddenly, Helen felt a symbol of something stirring in the gray darkness of her consciousness. Suddenly, she came alive. She had a single word composed of five letters. But that single word of five letters set her free at last from the dumb prison of herself And suddenly she knew that like water, everything in the world had a name. And she left the well house alive with the new possibility of becoming real, communicating person in the world that opened to her all at once. I thought about that. And I think, is that what we're doing in our own lives and to our world around us? Is, are we trying, we're trying to, to spell this this letter the letters of Christ into people's hands and hearts I think so
And I need others to do that for me just as much as I need for me to tell the world about it. It's a good thing to think about. Let's pray. Father, uh, today I would readily admit to you that it gets crazy, our lives. Sometimes we can live in this world and we can, we can, you know, kind of go along and we, it's so easy for us to not see the craziness of it all. I would pray that we would look at our, our world and see the absolute hunger for meaning that people have. I pray that we would be out in the world and that we would bring you with us and that we would speak and not be silent. Give us uh, your direction as to when to do that and how to do that. That's difficult sometimes for us, and so we need your direction. I pray for my friends here this morning who, like me, have many idols in their life. Hard for me to even pray that. And I pray, Lord, that you would forgive us for what we really believe about those idols. I pray that you would allow us to repent and to uh, kneel before your cross. I pray, Lord, that you would continue to be merciful to us. Help us. We thank you in your name. Amen.